Tonight we are in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. A number of the classic commentators, Seiss and Barclay and others, identify this chapter as the most difficult in the book. I don't really see it that way, but at the same time I do understand what they're saying because it is very, very, there are some identities here that are um, pretty important. So let's uh, jump into chapter 11. Now the place we're going to be in is in Jerusalem. The time is the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, Israel has a restored temple. It's one of the main features of this passage. It's interesting, you may recall last time from John chapter 10, I mean Revelation chapter 10, that John was told that he would prophesy again, a second time, uh, concerning many nations, uh, tongues and people and so forth. We're now going to see that in chapters 11 through 14, we're going to get an amplification of elements both before and after this period. In other words, we're in, a, in sort of an analysis pause. We've just had the, se- the seven seals and the seventh seal with seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is just about to blow, and it'll introduce seven bowls or vials of, of God's wrath. But we have a passage here from chapter 11 through 14 that gives us sort of stands back and editorializes and gives us some background as to what's happened to, to put these, all these things in perspective. Amplification, if you will. Now, one of the things you'll notice happening in the book of Revelation, especially in this chapter, but elsewhere you've noticed it, and you'll notice it some more, notice the distinction between Gentiles and Jews. If you're an astute reader of the New Testament, you realize that that's unusual. It certainly does not fit the period of the epistles of Paul and others. Many people who take the Bible seriously tend to view history as consisting of 6,000 years of history. We had 2,000 years of only Gentiles. Up until Abraham, they're all Gentiles. Then we had 2,000 years of Jews and Gentiles. Now we have about 2,000 years of Jews, Gentiles, and the church. So that takes care of 6,000 years. In the millennium, you have only two kinds of people on the earth, Jews and Gentiles. What happened to the church? See, one of the things that many people stumble in their study of prophecy isn't due to a lack of understanding of prophecy. It isn't eschatology that trips them up. It's ecclesiology, really understanding the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystery of the church. But what's interesting, while that's emphasized so much that we take it for granted in the writings between the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, in other words, the epistles, that we sort of take it for granted. We don't realize the mystery nature of the church. And it's interesting, as you get sensitive to that, you're even more surprised when you get the book of Revelation, because here in the Revelation, we again see the re-emergence of Israel as a, a key part of the, uh, the uh, scene, and uh, uh, it, the divisions are in twofold, not three. So it's kind of interesting. This chapter begins on the earth and will end in heaven. Let's get chapter uh, 11, verse 1. John says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. One of the things I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, a number of people try to make this vision apply to the church. Of course, it doesn't fit. There is a temple. It's in Jerusalem. There is an altar. There's nothing that's got anything to do with the church here. We're we're seeing the temple, and we're seeing an altar, and we're seeing them that worship in it. We are in Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt at this point. And as you know, the Jews have not had a temple since 70 A.D., We're going to talk a little bit more about the temple uh, as time permits, but the first thing to recognize is this is one of the three places in the New Testament that the rebuilding of the temple is required for the passage. Jesus made reference to it as the key element in his confidential briefing to his disciples that is recorded in Matthew 24 and and Luke 21 and Mark 13. In each case, there are two chapter passages, the famed Olivet Discourse. And the key element of the, center, the centerpiece of that, of course, involves a temple being, that is rebuilt before a second coming that's desecrated. And that's what we're going to see here. And Paul picks up on this in 2 Thessalonians 2. So this is the third place where John has an allusion here in the book of Revelation. Now, this reckoning or measuring of the temple is tantamount to claiming it. And we find by looking in the Old Testament and similar passages that it always precedes judgment. Now, by the way, the term temple here in the Greek is the nows. It's the temple proper, not the whole temple area, the temple proper. And the next verse won't make sense until you realize that in the Greek, the word nows refers to the temple itself, the physical temple, not the whole temple precincts, because there's a major portion of it that's excluded, as you'll see in the next verse. 
Now, this measuring rod or staff or chevette is mentioned all through the Old Testament. You can get a concordance and chase that down. But you'll also notice that this always precedes judgment. You know from the Scripture, judgment always starts where? At the house of God. You'll find passages sort of analogous to this one in Ezekiel 40 and in Zechariah 2. But in each case, the measurement is in preparation of the Lord's coming to dwell upon the earth. Very analogous to this one. So you can look that up on your own. Verse 2, the instruction continues. But the court that is without the temple that is without the house. it says leave out in the King James. The ekbala term in the Greek actually means throw it out, cast it out. It's, in other words, it's a rejection term. The court that is without the temple, cast it out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. I want you to notice something. We're getting a lot of stuff in this chapter. I want you to notice we're not talking about a vision. Sometimes in these passages, certainly in the Old Testament, also here in the book of Revelation, when you see a vision, you sometimes aren't sure whether that's an uh, idiomatic use, symbolic thing of something, or whether it's literal. In this case, it's direct instruction, so uh, it's not a vision at all. So that makes it actually easier. There's absolutely no reason to take this, uh, take this anything but literally. It's in the holy city. This is Jerusalem. And then the Gentiles shall tread it underfoot forty and two months. And this is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 24. Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Many of us got very excited in May 14th of 1948 when Israel re was reestablished in the land. Biblically, that's very significant because in Isaiah 11, verse 11, God, speaking through Isaiah, points out, when I regather them the second time, they'll never again be uprooted. And the first time was after Babylon. The second time is what we've been witnessing uh, since the, uh, the turn of the century. And it's especially exemplified by the formation of the state of Israel or reestablishment of it in May of 48. In, after the Six-Day War, when Israel regained biblical Jerusalem, uh, we got even more excited because that starts to move in a direction that sets the stage for the events of prophecy taking place. And, of course, many of us are very disturbed as we see this charade going on with the present so-called peace negotiations, which, if you talk to any strategist that knows the Middle East at all, can tell you assures a nuclear event the way it's being handled. And so the point is, it's a mess. And we see preparations, hidden agreements are now being exposed, of the partitioning of Jerusalem once again and so forth. On the one hand, it's discouraging as you realize the injustice of it all. On the other hand, it's interesting because it's moving along the prophetic scenario. And uh, as you will see, as we understand more and more by reading the book of Revelation and also Zechariah 12 and 14 and the other Old Testament passages that pertain to Jerusalem's future. So it's all coming together. The holy city, no other city in the Bible is so designated. And there's a handful of verses there. And uh, how many do you think? Seven. Seven. Good for you. Okay, right. Now, I want to call your attention to these 42 months. The key to all end-time prophecy, as I've mentioned many times, is the last four verses of Daniel 9. If you really understand the famed 70-week prophecy of Daniel, it's so pivotal because Gabriel lays out for Daniel precisely the history of Israel to the very end. And there are 69 weeks that are literally fulfilled, and it's in their literal fulfillment that we learn so much. Then there's an interval of some events that are not part of that. The clock seems to stop at the end of the 69th. Some events occur before the 70th week starts. Those events in Daniel 9 add up to at least 38 years. We've experienced them to be almost 2,000 years. But the point is, there is a seven-year period left to run off that God has ordained, maintained, reckoned, however you want to put it, for Israel. And it's interesting that that last seven-year period is what we're in the middle of in the book of Revelation. From chapter 6 through 19 is basically a detailing of events that pertain to this seven-year period. Now, that seven-year period, Jesus, both Daniel, Gabriel tells Daniel, Daniel 9, that in the middle of the week there's going to be an event that divides it into two halves. Jesus himself talks about that in his briefings, and we have it all through the book of Revelation. We find that this seven-year period, some people call it the tribulation, that's a common term, but it's a dangerous term because it's misleading. The great tribulation, as Jesus defines it, quoting Daniel 12, is actually the last half of that week. Technically, the great tribulation, as the Bible talks about, it, is a three-and-a-half-year period, the last half of that seven-year period. But by common parlance, we speak of the seven-year tribulation. That's actually, uh, you can defend it, but rather thinly, the truth of the matter is it's a confusing term. So if you use the term the 70th week of Daniel, you're more precise. It's a seven-year period. Now, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit several times refers to it is a ha half the week, in effect, in Daniel 9 as an example, and we'll see that in Revelation 12, verse 14, come up again. But 
It also speaks of those half-week periods as time, times, and the dividing of time. That sounds strange to our ears, but the word that's translated time is also used for years in Daniel 4 as an example. But the word time, times, the word times is difficult for our ears because we're not used to the grammar involved in the ancient Aramaic where it first came. And that is that time, there's a concept of not only a singular and a plural, but a dual. You have a singular, a dual, and a plural in many languages. And uh, the only place in English that I'm aware of it is the word both. If I say I have many friends, you don't know how many they are, but if I say I'm going to have all my friends over, both of them, <laughs> you know, I only have two friends. See, that's the only place I know in English where it occurs. But in any case, that is the ancient language had a dual that they used in the time, times, time, times, and the dividing time is a rhetorical way of saying three and a half years. But more important than that, lest you think that's contrived, twice in the book of Revelation alone, it speaks of that same period of time as 42 months. 42 months. You'll find that here, and we'll, find, we'll encounter it again in chapter 13, verse 5. But also it refers to that half-week period, three-and-a-half-year period, as 1,260 days. You'll find that in the next verse, and you'll find that in chapter 12, verse 6. So you'll find that 1260 days, and then 42 months several times, time times the dividing of time, and it's the middle of the, uh, it's, it's a half of a seven-year period. I can't imagine how the Holy Spirit could have done anything else to sort of underline and get across to us he's talking about a literal period of time. There's no need to make it symbolic. There's no need to make a day for a year, any of that sort of nonsense. It is very, very direct, very, very straightforward. The only thing he didn't do is tell how many hours, minutes, and seconds, or nanoseconds it was involved. He did everything else that you can imagine. Now, one reason we're so... There's many things that we believe, and I share with you, but we wouldn't be dogmatic about. But for this to be literal, I'm very comfortable simply because the 69 weeks are so precise. Because in the 70 weeks, when Gabriel told Daniel, he says that from this decree to the presentation of Jesus as the Messiah, the king would be 173,880 days, in effect. And it was to the exact day Jesus arranges to ride the donkey into Jerusalem on the very day that that, uh, Daniel had in his prophecy. In fact, if you read Luke 19 carefully, you discover that he held them accountable to know that day. He says that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Held him accountable. Study, it's a, if you haven't studied Daniel 70 weeks, you really want to master that because it, it will, you will learn an enormous amount about the deity of, deity of Christ, how precise God is, and uh, you'll also have the outline of which on all, upon which all of the prophecies will hang. But moving on, we're dealing here with the, 70 week, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, the most documented period of time in the Bible. It's also interesting that by realizing this is literal, it also gives you some comfort because it also says that God's judgment is precisely measured. There's the exact time it's going to happen. There's the exact time when it's through and it's finished. It's over. And uh, uh, preceding to all the other events that will occur uh, before the millennium. Now, in the, before we leave these verses, because um, we're going to change subjects here in a minute, I'd like to talk a little bit about the coming temple. And it's mentioned, as I mentioned, it's, it occurs three times in the New Testament, Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and also Revelation 11, first two verses of, as we've seen. One of the interesting things is that they're preparing to rebuild the temple. They have young men in training. They have uh, semi-automatic looms weaving the linen for their priestly vestments. They have the Temple Institute that's fabricated uh, some more than 60 of the 100 implements that are needed. They're actually taking this all very seriously. It's interesting, too, that there are several technical disputes about exactly where the temple stood. It obviously is on the Temple Mount, but that's a 35-acre uh, piece of ground. The tradition, there are three views. The traditional view, of course, is that the temple stood where the present Dome of the Rock stands. And that view is still held by many of the conservative rabbis in Israel, and still the, quote, official view. But more modern scholarship has raised some serious questions here. Dr. Asher Kaufman made history some 10 years ago by publishing his researches, and, uh, uh, and many, stu- many hold his view as being correct, and that is that the temple actually stood about 100 meters to the north. And I won't take the time here to go through all that. I will take an evening and go through that with slides and so forth to show you the situation for a number of reasons. First of all, so you can understand any news breaks that occur over the next few years. But there's a third theory. Dr. Kaufman's view, if he's correct, would indicate this temple stood about 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock. The reason that got got, got the uh, biblical community so excited when it first came out 
was if Dr. Kaufman's correct, the Dome of the Rock stands in the outer, what really was the outer court. Everybody rushed to Revelation 11, verse 1 and 2, and notice that, gee, that uh, Paul, uh, John is told to measure the, now it's the temple proper, but cast out the outer court because it's given to the Gentiles. In other words, it's not, it's not dedicated space. And so the hypothesis that emerged, of course, is, gee, maybe there'll be, when this gets confirmed somehow, that uh, they'll be able to rebuild their temple without bothering the Dome of the Rock. And that's a theory that sounds very attractive if you're 5,000 miles away from Israel living here in the United States. But if you're either a Jew or a Muslim in Jerusalem, that's not exciting at all, because the Jews really don't want to have what they call the abomination of desolation, but they don't use that technically. They're just, it's just an emotional term, emotionally charged term. But they, they, they don't want that thing near their temple. And of course, the Muslims are not interested in having a Jewish temple on the side at all. So that really solves nothing, at least in the present environment. But there's a third view that's catching a lot of interest in the recent years. An architect in uh, Israel by the name of Tubi Sagiv is, in attempting to build three-dimensional computer models of the temple site, discovered some real conflicts from the ancient records versus the, that presumed uh, uh, topology. And I won't take you through it here tonight, but to make a long story short, Tuvia uh, has surfaced about a dozen different evidences that are really surprisingly convincing that the temple had to stand at a lower elevation. That means it had to be to the south because the bedrock rises as you go northward in that area. Yeah, you can't tell it from the, from the, the mount because it's been retaining walled and flattened, but the point is the bedrock... Uh, uh, if the temple stood lower, it stood to the south. And the net of it is, is that um, uh, he believes the temple stood about 100 meters to the south that would place the Holy of Holies about where the Al-Khaz fountain is, halfway between Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Recent uh, infrared photography uh, seems to support Tuvia's conjecture. Also, some ground-penetrating radar studies also seem to support Tuvia. None of these are conclusive, and it's still obviously a very hotly debated topic, but more and more uh, open-minded investigators are beginning to lean Tuvia's way. But just be aware there are three different views, and, I, and obviously this is being quietly pursued by competent scientists, and we'll see what, the, the, what time brings. And we'll review all this with charts and diagrams on another occasion. And, of course, if you're really interested in this, we have publications and all that in our materials. But now we get into another subject, and uh, the famed passage of the two witnesses, or two prophets, if I might be a little more precise. And it's interesting that these we have on the one hand this temple that opens the chapter, and yet the temple we know from Second Thessalonians two and the, and also what we'll see later on in Revelation thirteen is this temple is destined is to be profaned. And it's interesting; it's almost as if it's in contradistinction to that temple that we see God ordain, set up, and and empower two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Well, it's kind of interesting. If you may recall when Moses led them in the wilderness for 40 years, and then didn't his ministry got interrupted, as you recall. Remember that he, uh, he they had that event at, at, at the rock where they were they didn't have water, and God told them to, uh, to strike the rock, and he does, and water comes, and the people had water. Well, later on, the same event occurs again. They again are out of water, and uh, God tells Moses to speak to the rock. Well, Moses is exasperated with the position he's been put in by these people, so he's angry and he strikes the rock. Well, they get their water, but God calls Moses aside and says, oh, you didn't do what I told you to do. And because you didn't do what I told you to do, you're not going to enter the promised land. Now, when you read that narrative, you say, wait a minute. He spent 40 years taking a job he didn't ask for. And he makes one little boo-boo here, you know, the way we would read it. And yet God says, no, Moses, you, 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 you didn't do what I told you to do. Now, there's several implications of that. One is Moses miscommunicated God. God was not angry with those people, but Moses gave them that impression. God didn't like that. But there's another aspect, too, it's kind of interesting, that had Moses done what God had asked him, then the two rocks events would have portrayed the first and second comings, in a sense. Paul touches on that, in a sense, in 1 Corinthians 10. But the point is, Moses then, as you know, was allowed to see the promised land from a height, but he, he, he dies and he's buried there. Who buries him? God does. Well, we'll come back to that issue in a moment, but the main point is his ministry is interrupted, and um, it's interesting when Joshua takes over, they ultimately go after, uh, they, they enter the promised land. Remember when Joshua goes against Jericho, he sends ahead two spies. Why didn't he send 12 like Moses did 40 years earlier? Well, maybe it's because 10 of them weren't worth much. <laughs> you remember... <laughs> You remember the twelve spot? They sent the twelve, one from each tribe, into the land, and the, and two guys came out of there and said, "Hey, let's go. God's with us." We saw, you know, all this wonderful uh, bounty, and uh, the other ten guys says, "Hey, 
<laughs> they're, they're big guys there. You know, they're giants in the land. And they meant it literally, by the way. There was the, you know, the Oklahoma football team was in there. No, it was worse than that. Uh, they really had giants. And also, he said, we are like grasshoppers in front of them. And I assume that's an exaggeration. But, um, oh, they, they, they accused God of uh, wanting them to die there in the wilderness. And God says, no, you got it backwards. You're going to die. Your children will go in. So they, that's when they wandered for 40 years before. And that, when that generation died off, the children entered the land. But only two, the two spies that gave a good report, of course, were Joshua and Caleb. And they did survive, and they did enter the land as leaders. And it's interesting, maybe Joshua picked two because uh, of that experience. Two were enough if they're the right ones. But there's another reason. There's two is, re- is the required number of witnesses before the law. Deuteronomy uh, 17.6, and it's also Matthew 18. There's, it, it, two, was the requ- two or more were required for a witness in a legal trial. You, you see that evidence throughout the Scripture. It's also interesting, though, we always see two angels after the resurrection. Remember in the, in the empty tomb? And also at the ascension in Acts chapter 1. Who's left there? Two, two men dressed in white, obviously angels, giving testimony. And uh, it's also interesting that two angels accompanied the Lord in Genesis 18 in this issue of Rodham and Gomorrah and uh, so forth. So, now I just want to see if you're listening. Okay. <laughs> now these guys that are going to surface here... <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. Yes, I should. Okay, well, whatever. That's my token acknowledgement of the Beijing UN conference. Okay, these two gentlemen that are going to be raised up here um, are specifically called prophets. In effect, they're empowered as a prophet. I want you to notice the styling of the passage is very much like the Old Testament. Let's jump into verse. Uh, uh, and again, I remind you, this is a, this is a directly this is a direct speech, not a vision. Verse three, and I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, first of all, it's, uh, the scholars differ on the precision here. I, I believe this occurs in the first three and a half years of the seven-year period. And some people have different views, and, and that gets into a lot of very... A lot of tech, most, most commentators see this occurring the first half of the week. Why? Because in the middle of the week, of the abomination of desolation, it's also when they're killed, as you'll see in a minute. In any case... They're clothed in sackcloth. Does that sound like the church age to you? You know, there's no biblical instruction for you and I to run around in sackcloth. That's an Old Testament idea. That's a, that's a vestige of the law period, not the grace period. So again, we have an interesting thing going on here. This is a very Old Testament gesture, if I may. Everything here, in fact, speaks of the Old Testament in ways that you'll see. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Olive trees. Actually, it means the trees of oil. And this is an echo of Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, we have the leader Zerubbabel and his priest, whose name was Joshua. Different Joshua we talked about a minute ago, obviously much, much later in their history. But um, Zerubbabel and Joshua reestablished Israel after the Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the temple. In, in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, you find them likened again to two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. You have to get the picture. Sometimes your translations call them candlesticks. That's an unfortunate translation. It's really a lampstand that's fed by oil. But instead by fed by oil that you have to replace, it was literally connected to an olive tree. In other words, it has the imagery there is one of an inexhaustible supply of oil for that light. And so it's an idiom. These two guys back then were, were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's really just the oil, of course, is an idiom of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's the idiom that was used in Zechariah 4, and that's the idiom that's used here. Now, because that idiom happens to be used here, there are some scholars that believe that these two witnesses will literally be Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. Not many scholars believe that, but there's a few. And uh, I wouldn't disparage it. It doesn't happen to be the view I hold for reasons that'll be, uh, that'll emerge as we go here. But anyway, let's get back to these two witnesses as presented here in chapter 11, verse 5. If any man will hurt them... Fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So you don't mess around with these preachers. <laughs> these have the, verse 6, these have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And have power over waters to turn them to blood. And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Wow. God had confidence in them. Even Moses, whenever he did something, went to the Lord and asked, right? This is a little different. 
These guys, <laughs> I don't know, maybe the Lord's ninjas or something. Anyway, they smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, there are all kinds of speculations as to who these two guys are. And let me up front point out that none of us really know. Some of us have some prejudices or beliefs that I'll share with you, but let me underscore up front that there are many different views about this passage. Now, the first thing, the first clue we get is from John chapter 1, verse 20. So let's get a little background here and, and let's get an understanding of what the Jewish leadership believed about prophecy by looking at John chapter 1. Now, John the, don't confuse now, John the Baptist at this time in chapter 1 is out by the Jordan preaching. We pick it up about verse 19. This is the witness of John when, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. And he goes on to make his testimony. See, one of the strange things is John the Baptist was out there by the Jordan baptizing. And he had such a crowd drawn that the temple authorities sent some investigators to find out what's going on. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? What you're missing in the text here is a map. If you leave Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem and stay at a reasonable hotel and rent a rental car to go see Jericho, you've got a half a day drive. You know, this is, this is what, 20 miles over rough terrain. Now that's... How did John draw a crowd there? Now, there's a legend, of course, that he's literally, literally wearing the mantle of Elijah. And there's a very interesting legend that Elijah, as you know, when he was translated, his mantle fell upon Elisha, his mantle in his belt. And Elisha um, wanted a double portion. Talk about chutzpah. He wanted a double portion, and he got it. Now, Elijah had eight miracles recorded in the Old Testament. You, you'll discover that Elisha has 16, interestingly enough. But in any case, when Elisha dies, the legend, just a tradition, is that his mantle and girdle was, there's no one uh, worthy to take it, so he was instructed, to, they were instructed to put it in the golden altar by the Holy of Holies. And the legend is when Zechariah is told that he's going to have a son, turns out to be John the Baptist, is that he is told to take that to, from the golden altar and take it home. And 30 years later, when John the Baptist is baptizing, he's literally wearing the mantle and the belt of Elijah. And I thought that's contrived, kind of colorful. Investigating the... Uh, golden altar, though I was shocked to discover that while the Ark of the Covenant was not in Herod's temple, the golden altar was. And I thought, whoa, not that that makes the legend correct, but at least it closes that loop, interestingly enough. So who knows? It does, it is interesting because if that kind of, uh, that kind of thing could help explain the crowd that was being drawn, who knows? But in any case, uh, the point is, as they go to investigate John the Baptist, they ask, they're expecting three different people. They ask him, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask him that? Because the Old Testament closes. Turn to Malachi, or Malachi for you Italians, uh, chapter 4, the last chapter of the book of Malachi. Last two verses of the Old Testament reads as follows. Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Period. The Old Testament ends with the word curse. What causes confusion here is that, John, first of all, John the Baptist asked him, are you Elijah? Because they're expecting Elijah. They are today. Go to any Orthodox Jewish house when they have Passover, and they always have an empty chair, Right? What's the empty chair for? That's in case Elijah shows up. That's just a tradition, but it's based on this, this view, this ancient rabbinical view. Now, what causes confusion is that there are a couple of remarks that Jesus made having to do with John the Baptist, that if you could have accepted it, he could have been him kind of thing. Jesus is reasoning from a contrary to fact premise. And because of that, many people think that John the Baptist was Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah. Was he the fulfillment of this prophecy? No, let's read the prophecy more carefully. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Did John the Baptist do that? No. If so, he was unsuccessful. Now, 
So because of this and some other reasons I'll come to, I think most conservative scholars will agree they believe that one of the two witnesses is in fact Elijah. And for a handful of reasons. First of all, uh, he was expected. I've mentioned that. It's interesting that if you study the Old Testament, there are two... Well, I'll come back to that. There are two ministries that are, uh, that are um, interrupted, and Elijah is one of them. 1 Kings 17 and 19 and 2 Kings chapter 2 give you the story of Elijah. He, uh, he has an incredible career. He has that incredible... Uh, you golfers like to talk about handicaps. Elijah gets on Mount Carmel and challenged the priests of Baal. They had their two offerings. Told the priests of Baal, if if Baal be God, let him light your fire. And they scream and shout and go through their theatrics. Nothing happens all day long till evening. When they're finally exhausted, and while all this is going on, of course, Elijah's taunting them. Maybe he can't hear you, he's deaf. Maybe he's relieving himself. I mean, this is the way Elijah's talking. Well, then, of course... (laughs) Then Elijah's, it's Elijah's turn. He sets up the wood and the, the altar. But then he does something that uh, I always I think it was a handicap. He has him, has him douse it three times with water, as if he needed a handicap. See? And he calls to God. The fire comes down, and, and Israel realizes who God really is. And Elijah doesn't mess around. He has them slaughter the 450 priests of Baal. Now, the priests of Baal were the personal priests of uh, Jezebel, so he, I, Elijah comes to the realization that Jezebel would probably take a dim view of those proceedings. So he pouts and hides and so forth. Anyway, to make a long story short, Elijah ultimately does get uh, translated or, or, or taken up. And that's one of the reasons so many people have no trouble with Elijah being one of the two witnesses, because he never died. In other words, he's, he, he never saw death, so they think he may be here. Now... There's some other reasons for Elijah I'll leave for the moment, but I think the point is everybody seems to agree on Elijah. The second one is the one that everybody argues about. There are many people that believe that the second of the two witnesses is Enoch, because Enoch also was translated. Two guys in the Old Testament didn't see death. They were translated. Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11, and Enoch, which is mentioned in Genesis 5. And the reason that they pick Enoch is because of that reason. They point, people will typically point to Hebrews 9.27 where it says, It is appointed unto man, but once to die, and after this the judgment. Well, it happens to be speaking of physical, uh, spiritual rather than physical death, but that's still not the point. That is the general rule. That statement is there as a renunciation of false doctrines such as reincarnation. Non-biblical. One of Satan's lies. Now... Does everybody die once? No. Lazarus died twice. The widow of Nain's son died twice. Jairus' daughter died twice. You can make a list. The general rule, certainly. We all face death once and for all. But there are some exceptions. Two guys that didn't see death at all. A whole generation that's yet that will eventually not see death that will be raptured, or portion thereof, I should say. So that argument is a little weak on Enoch. There's another big problem that Enoch has. He's not Jewish. These are Jewish prophets, and Enoch was not Jewish. He was before Abraham. Now, by the way, as in a footnote on our study of Enoch, Enoch's an interesting guy to the church for some other reasons. In fact, I associate Enoch more with the church than I do with Israel. can't associate him with Israel. He's long before, in fact, the... Oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet in the Bible is one by Enoch. It's of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But Enoch was born on the 6th of Sivan, which is the day of the Feast of Pentecost. And Jewish tradition has it that he was raptured on his birthday. And I think it's fascinating that the church was born in Acts 2 on the Feast of Shavuot. And I wonder, I'm not setting dates, but I just wonder, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's when the church will be raptured, if indeed Enoch is a model. Enoch does, I think, as a model. There are three groups of people that faced the flood of Noah, the judgment of the flood. Those that perished the flood, those that were preserved through the flood, and those that were removed before the flood. Interesting. But we'll move on. Two ministries in the Old Testament that are unfinished, Moses and Elijah. What perhaps is the most telling testimony is this business of the powers that are enumerated in Revelation chapter 11. We find that there are four powers listed there. Two of them are unique to Elijah. Fire from heaven, calling down fire from heaven. And we find this in 1 Kings 18, 2 Kings 1, 10 and 12, and 
so, and also in Jeremiah 5.4. So the, the point is that, that when you call, if you talk about the Old Testament calling down fire from heaven, the one that that is unique to is Elijah. A second power is the power to shut heaven so it will not rain. Now, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice that it gives Elijah credit for the relieving the drought. There was a drought, and he caused it to rain in 1 Kings 17. What you can't find out, I don't believe, by reading the Old Testament, but you can from the New, is how, first of all, you discover that it was Elijah that shut the heavens in the first place. He shut the heavens, and then he, at the point of time, called the rain. It's not clear from the Old Testament, I don't think, that, as I recall the narrative, that uh, you can tell that Elijah was accountable for having the drought in the first place. Do you follow me? Now, what's interesting to me is that twice, two witnesses again, twice in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, and Jesus himself, both make reference to the fact that it was Elijah that shut the heavens and ended the drought. Do you know how long the heavens were sealed by Elijah? Three and a half years. And my authority for that is Luke 4.25 and James 5.17. So those two of the four powers are unique to Elijah. The other two powers listed there is the turning the water into blood, which is analogous to Exodus 7.19, that you think right away of Moses. And, of course, calling all manner of plagues, Exodus chapter 8 through chapter 12. Now, one of the things as we're talking about these powers of these two witnesses, I want you to notice how contrast that is, uh, how contrast that is with the church. The ministers of the church are to be harmless. To be harmless. Philippians 2.15, Romans 16.19. In fact, James and John wanted to, du- wanted to duplicate what Elijah did. There was a situation that says, hey, can't we call down fire on those guys? And the Lord rebuked them. And that's in Luke chapter 9, verses uh, 54 through 56. Now, there are some people, by the way, that... Try to visualize perhaps one of the two witnesses might be the Apostle John. They put that on a couple of allusions. One is chapter 10 closed with the angel or Jesus telling John, um, you're going to prophesy again concerning many peoples and tongues and so forth. And so some people see that as tied that maybe John is one of the two witnesses, and maybe it'll turn out to be. There's also a widely misunderstood passage in John 21 where uh, P- uh, Jesus talking to Peter and the idea that uh, John is uh, not, you know, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what's it to you if he tarry till I come? You know, and so forth. And, and John himself explains that it's from that remark that the word went around that he would never die. And, of course, he did die. He, uh, there's a legend when he was the bishop of Ephesus that they tried to boil him in oil and nothing happened. That's why the exile in the Patmos. But that's probably just one of these colorful legends. But in any case, my problem visualizing John being one of the two witnesses is that John is the church. He's, he's in the church. I believe, I believe he's a, a part of the church, which puts him in a whole different category. But in any case, another dimension to this occurs in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, we have this strange event called the transfiguration. Transfiguration. We might pop over to Matthew 17 and take a quick look at it. Now, by the way, many people, one of your little habits you can do when you study your scripture, whenever you have a chapter break, always look at a verse or two before that, because sometimes these chapter breaks are in the wrong place. And chapter 11 will turn out to have that same problem. But Matthew 17, before you read verse 1, read the last verse of chapter 16. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You say, wow, the, the, the God, his kingdom should have come before the disciples die. No. Here's what he's talking about. Chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine like the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said, there's Peter, you know, he always, uh, ready, fire, aim, you know. Some people say the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet. <laughs> he always puts his foot in it. He says, but here anyway, he says, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three booths, 
One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Some scholars conjecture this may have occurred about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. That's maybe why that was on his mind. But in any case, let's make three booths for thee. One for Moses, one and one for Elijah, and so forth. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man except Jesus only. And as they were come down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is raised again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Jesus answered and said unto him, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. So there's a confirmation of the Malachi prophecy, if you will. But he goes on to give them a lesson. He says, But I say unto you that Elijah has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke unto them of John the Baptist. And it's because of that people confuse it. But the point is, Elijah literally is come. Now, the, it's my personal view, no more than that, that the second witness, the second uh, witness in, in uh, Revelation 11 is Moses. I say that because of probably two, two major arguments. One is because the four powers are uni- two of them are unique to Elijah, two to Moses. That's in a sense to me enough. The fact that all, both Moses and Elijah, as well as Amaziah, was expected by that first century uh, in Judaism. They were looking for the, the Messiah, and John the Baptist says, I'm not him. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not him. They also, are you that prophet? What they meant is the prophet of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy that there would come at the end time a prophet like Moses. And that prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. And I believe that this, uh, whether these two prophets are literally Moses and Elijah, and that's what I believe, or whether they are stand in their stead, that may be just a technicality. The net of it is, is I do really expect Elijah and Moses to show up as the scripture indicates. And I say that because of the four powers that are enumerated. I also say that because of Matthew 17. Because one of the people that's impressed here is Peter. And Peter, in his first and second letters, in Peter chapter, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, and 2 Peter 1, verses 6 through 18, in both of his letters, Peter makes allusion to this experience when they saw him on the mount. And if you read it carefully, you'll discover that what was being talked about between Jesus and Moses and Elijah was the second coming. So I tend to view Matthew 17 as a staff meeting where they're discussing what's going to happen. In, in, in Revelation 11. That's just a view. Now this leads to a mystery that I don't have an answer for, but I'll share with you. In Jude chapter 9, Jude is another one of Jesus' brothers that comes to the Lord after his resurrection. Jude writes a little short epistle, a one-chapter epistle that is uh, an interesting study in its own right. But in his epistle, he makes an incidental allusion to something that he presumes his readers are aware of. And unfortunately, we don't have any records that corroborate or where they get... We have some apocryphal books that deal with that, but I won't get into that right now. But he mentions that Michael was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. Turn to Jude. Just go to Revelation, turn left. The epistle of Jude is primarily speaking against apostates. Speaking about verse 8. He's speaking of these filthy dreamers. He says, In like manner, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, and they despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. These people who are against the gospel of Christ despise dominion. Well, we can understand that. They don't like to be subject to rules. And they speak evil of dignities. We're not supposed to speak evil of people in authority, are we? But then to give you an example of that, Jude picks what has to be the most bizarre example you could conceive of. The dignity that he doesn't want you to speak evil of is Satan. Yeah, really, look. Verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, while contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Boy, that's strange. The example Jude happens to choose is to recognize Satan's authority. You don't contend with him directly. You let the Lord deal with it. 
And I mention this because often and sometimes in a very enthusiastic song fest, we speak rather improperly of this one who is the prince of this world. Don't misunderstand me. The Lord is in control. But Satan is the god of this world. He's going to get his. But it's interesting that Jude picks this example. But setting all that aside for the moment, this incidental allusion is the thing that puzzles us. What are you talking about here? Michael the archangel, while contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. I mean, who cares? Why? First of all, why does Satan want the body? It's going to be, uh, you know, worms, maggots, and dust here in a few months. I mean, what's that got to do with anything? Why does Satan want it in the first place? What's even more puzzling, okay, why does Michael want it? What's he going to do with it? So no one knows. This is a subject of apocryphal literature that I would ignore. But it is interesting. So something's going on. Something's going on. And uh, what relationship it has to Revelation 11 is one of obvious just wild conjectures. So I'll leave that with you. But it's interesting. I personally just have a view. It doesn't mean it's correct, but I share it with you in candor. That I expect to really see Moses and Elijah show up here. The law and the prophets, if you will. J. Vernon McGee thinks that one of the two witnesses, well, everybody agrees that Elijah is one of them. Some people think John the Baptist will be one of them. And, and now John the Baptist fits more than John the Apostle because he was part of the Old Testament dispensation. In fact, the Old Testament closes with John the Baptist, according to Luke 16, 16. And some people say John the Apostle because of the remark that's made in the previous chapter. But uh, for various reasons, I don't hold either one of those, but who knows? We'll see. Verse 7, let's move on. And when they, the two witnesses, and when they shall finish their testimony, have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them, and kill them. Now, the beast of the bottomless pit. This is your first mention of the beast of the bottomless pit. He is going to surface in detail in chapter 13. But here is the first allusion. Notice where he comes from. Out of the bottomless pit. He is obviously demonically empowered. A literal person on the earth, as we'll see when we get there, and yet with supernatural capabilities. And the world's not ready for that. Anyway, when he, uh, he ascends out of the bottomless pit, he shall make war against them, these two witnesses, and shall overcome them when their ministry is completed. Until their ministry is completed, no one can touch them, the previous verses had indicated. But he will, when the time is up, he will kill them. Now, at this point, of course, we see the Antichrist in power. We're going to see more of this in chapter 13. But I want you to notice what happens when he kills them in verse 8. And their bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord is crucified. Now, this causes a lot of confusion, but it needn't. Which spiritually it's called Sodom. This is a description of the moral condition of Jerusalem at the time. Spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. The corruption of Sodom and the worldliness of Egypt. Egypt is throughout the scripture used idiomatically of the world. And of course Sodom, and especially in our generation, needs no amplification. But so that you don't get confused, the Holy Spirit adds, to make sure you don't misunderstand his allusion here, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. So he's talking about that great city, Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem and Sodom is alluded to in Isaiah chapter 1 and 3, Jeremiah 23, Deuteronomy 32, and of course the allusions to Egypt in uh, Ezekiel 23 in about four places. The word great, by the way, occurs in chapter 11 eight times, but I don't know what you do with that piece of information. Verse 9, And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? On the one hand, this world leader, this beast as he's alluded to here, succeeds in knocking these two guys off. We're going to discover in the next verse, verse 10, that the world is so thrilled. They are so glad to have these preachers off their back that they send gifts to each other. So he's a hero. This world leader that finally kills these two troublemakers is a hero. The world celebrates. Okay. But it's interesting, he doesn't even let their bodies be put into graves. I wonder if they're afraid of an empty tomb again or something. In any case, and so 
for three days and a half. And I see no reason for that to be taken anything but literally. Three days and a half. By the way, this is predicted in Psalm 20, uh, 79. In the interest of time, because we're getting close to the end of time here, I won't look, but you might look at Psalm 79, the first three verses and then verses 10 and 11. Seems to possibly make a hint of this kind of thing. But in any case, verse 10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall... Oh, one other thing about verse 9. Notice that the people and kindreds and tongues and nations. That's not a local neighborhood. That sounds like the world, right? The world is going to see their dead bodies for three and a half days. Can you imagine the consternation this has given commentators over the centuries? How can the people of the world see these bodies laying in the street? Well, for us, aren't we glib? Yeah, satellite, CNN, of course, yeah. But the point is, notice, notice how things we take for granted fit into picture here. This was written 2,000 years ago, roughly. Interesting. I think it's the same cameras that are on the Holy of Holies in uh, Matthew 24, 15, that watch the, the same beast have erected a, a uh, idol in the Holy of Holies in the temple we just saw. Because that's also seen on camera. How can people in Judea flee into the mountains unless they, when they see what's something that has to go on in the Holy of Holies? The abomination of desolation. We'll talk more about that before it's all over. But it's interesting, verse 10, they that dwell upon the earth. Now be sensitive to this term. It's not just those guys. There are two kinds of people on the planet earth. Those that dwell upon the earth and those whose citizenship is in heaven. The concept here of dwelling on the earth isn't just that they happen to be physically living on the earth. The term implies dwelling on the earth. And hopefully you and I have as our goals not to do that. We're passing through. We're sojourners, just like Abraham was. Our citizenship is in heaven. We look for a city whose maker is God. They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. These guys were a pain in the ear. Or wherever. And um, it's interesting, we have portrayed here the only occasion... On the planet Earth, in the book of Revelation, that there's any rejoicing. The only place on the Earth that there's any rejoicing is when these people celebrate that this coming world leader finally has put those two guys out of business, it would seem. And I'm sure they have their own agenda, why they left the bodies out there in the public for exposure, uh, maybe an act of humiliation or, or vanity, however you want to put it. But they're just playing into God's hand because watch for this grandstand. Verse 11. Boy, I'd love to have the video rights to verse 11. <laughs> After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God who entered into them and they stood upon their feet. But first a commercial break. No. Okay. <laughs> And great fear fell upon them, which saw them. <laughs> Boy, I can imagine. Can you imagine celebrating the riddance of these troublemakers and to watch live around the world them get up, dust themselves off, and we're out of here. <laughs> And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Some years earlier, another rose into that cloud, and his friends beheld him. These two guys ascended into a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Come up hither. The same phrase, I believe, that was in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 to John, which at least idiomatically is representative of the rapture in chapter 4, verse 1, as we saw. Verse 13. Oh, by the way, this raises another point I might mention. We're going to talk later about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Understand that's not an event, it's a category. Was Jesus Christ part of the first resurrection? Of course, he's the first fruits of them that slept. Okay? The people that are raptured in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, are part of the first resurrection. But that's later, at some period of time. 
Are these two guys resurrected, obviously, into heaven? Yes. They're also part of what? The first resurrection. Everybody is in either the first or the second resurrection. Understand that. It's a category, not an event. Moving on, verse 13. At the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here's another one of these earthquakes. A great earthquake occurred when the sixth seal was opened. Another, that's in chapter 6, verse 12. Another, a greater one when the seventh bowl is poured out. That's coming up in chapter 16. It's interesting. I believe it's a literal earthquakes. By the way, we all in California worry about the St. Andrea's Fault. Let me tell you about where the big one is. Where the real big one is. And that's right up and down the Jordan River. It's, it's called the Great Rift Valley. It goes all the way down under the Dead Sea to Africa. It's considered, uh, I think, the biggest fault on the, known, known on the planet Earth. A tenth of the city fell, and if you're a rabbi, that hits you right in the eye, because a tenth belongs to whom? The Lord, you bet. Revelation, uh, Leviticus 27. 7,000 men were slain, but if the actual Greek is strange. It says this in a strange way. It says 7,000 names of men were killed in the earthquake. It's a strange way to construct the sentence. 7,000 names of men were killed. The idiom at least suggests men of prominence. 7,000 names. People who have studied the book of Revelation, the Greek, carefully, notice that in many places it's almost ungrammatical. The Greek in Revelation especially is very strange, and there are many scholars that believe it was translated from Hebrew. In fact, there is a school of, common, of, of new scholarship that believes the whole New Testament was translated into Greek from Hebrew, from Hebrew originals, so to speak. And there's some evidence of that as we get more sophisticated in understanding the, the, the structure of the language. But the point is, it's possible there may be something more hidden behind this uh, than any of the commentators have really developed. I'm not good enough at exegesis to be creative here. I'm just giving you things that I've gotten from my own uh, researches into people who do the exegesis. But uh, there's, a very, something, there's something more behind this than just 7,000 men being killed, it seems. But in any case, verse 14. Now, this ends, incidentally, this parenthetical session. It says, the second woe is past. Remember, there were three woes. Second woe is past, and behold, a third woe cometh quickly. We're going to now open up the discussion in chapters 12 and 13 to seven personalities. This is not normally in your outlines of the book of Revelation because they all talk about seals, trumpets, and, and bowls, but there are seven personalities inserted between them as in part of this uh, 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 overview here. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is a small technicality in this translation. The word kingdom is singular in the Greek, not plural. And it's a basilia, and it, uh, Satan has had the world under his control. And uh, what you need to do is un- uh, understand Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. And 12.26 and John 12.31, Who is the God of this world? Satan is. So the kingdom here that's singular is Satan's. Not kingdoms in the sense lots of them and now they're all the Lord's. Not that that isn't true, but the emphasis here is a little different. This kingdom that has been Satan is now under challenge. Direct challenge. And this in effect is a preamble as an announcement of victory. You may recall in the three temptations of Jesus, in one of those temptations, Satan takes him to the pinnacle and shows him all the nations of the world. And he says to Jesus, all these are given to me and I can give them to whomsoever I will. And they're all yours if you worship me. Now, Jesus never debated his control or authority. He didn't say, you don't own them. He simply said, no, I, I, you worship the Lord and only him shall you serve. Now, that's interesting. That's one of the many testimonies in Scripture that this view of Satan as the prince of the air, the god of this age, the god of this world, the, the, uh, and so forth, is, is a valid description. If there's sin, if there's injustice, if there's pain and suffering in this world, remember what God is accountable for that. Not the, not the one who's ultimately at rule, because he's going to straighten that all out, but the one that's in control right now, and that's Satan. And that's what this is all about. That's what this battle is all about. That's what this 
this conquering is all about, as we'll see. Because what this gives rise to then is a whole another crescendo of praise, as we encountered earlier. Uh, very analogous kind of thing. Firstly, what we have here is an announcement of victory. I want you to notice, by the way, the trumpet that's blown here is a trumpet of an angel, not the trumpet of God. Don't get confused. This isn't the last trump. The last trump is a specific Levit- uh, Levitical meaning we can talk about on another occasion. But the point is, the trumpet of God is what, what uh, Paul alludes to in his epistles. And the trumpet of God shows up in Exodus 19 when the law was given at Sinai and at the rapture of the church, or the two places. We have here one of the trumpet judgments. Is it the last trump? No, it's not. There are going to be lots of other trumpets. The trumpets are blown all through the millennium for the, for, in their celebrations, etc. But let's move on. Now, the seventh angel is going to yield seven bowls of wrath, but first we're going to talk about seven personalities in the interim that are the key actors in this whole panorama. Verse 16, And four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. Now, we've got a threefold acclamation of praise coming here, that Christ reigns supremely in the next verse, that He judges righteously in verse 18, and that He rewards graciously in, in verse 18. Verse 17 going on. These, uh, they worship God saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reign. Now the hast reign is also mistranslated. The hast reign is actually the ingressive first aorist active indicative. Now if you want to write that down, you can, or what you can simply put, it should be translated, Thou hast begun to reign. Thou hast begun to reign. So they're announcing his victory, but it's the beginning of a sequence of events that are about to unfold. But the victory is thus assured, because God is finally dealing with sin, with evil, with the corruption on this earth. Those things that were introduced to us in Genesis 3 are now going to be dealt with. On what basis? On the blood that was shed on a cross some almost 2,000 years ago. Now it's interesting, in Revelation 4, you may recall the elders worship the Creator. In chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, they worship the Redeemer. You remember those crescendos in those cases. And here, the emphasis is on the conqueror and the king. The conqueror and the king. Verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and thou, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Now, before you jump on the ecology bandwagon, I should point out the word destroy there really means corrupt in the spiritual sense. It's not an ecological statement, but referring to those who follow the one that's called the destroyer. That's really what it means. However, don't we, let me, I just want to emphasize that so you understand the passage. I'm not disparaging uh, a biblical concern for ecology. Man cannot be an acceptable steward if he denies the owner. But what verse 18 really is, is a table of contents to the rest of the book. Verse 18 is a table of contents for the remainder of the book of Revelation. It's like a scope statement. In the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, I have four verses, but that first verse is sort of a scope statement of the rest. This is sort of like a scope statement of what's about to all unfold in the coming chapters. Now, the nations are angry. Why are they angry? Because they want to have their own way. You remember the, the, the trialogue between the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in Psalm 2? You might refresh your memory. Turn. Well, I just uh, we're running short of time. It, read the first three verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the, and the nations uh, imagine a vain thing? And it goes on. See, they want to cast off all restraint. And what God is going to let them do is you're going to let them do it. Holy Spirit in, in his indwelling in the church has been removed. They're going to be turned loose. And they're going to build what they think is their utopia that will be described in chapters 17 and 18. And their anger is going to lead to Armageddon. The world is actually knowledgeably going to take up arms against God. Go to war with God. Can you imagine? That's what Armageddon really is. Most people don't realize that. Not just four people fighting over something. Going up against God. Hard for us to imagine. Even as depraved as the world is, it's hard for us to really visualize that. We can begin to see take shape as we watch the various moves of the major leadership, not just in our country but elsewhere, openly not only just ignore God, but openly deny Him and, and openly espouse policies against those that love God. And we can begin to start seeing, seeing that starting to take place, starting to be visible. Thy wrath is come. 
this angry is a verb form of the word translated wrath. The last half of the 70th week will, of course, reveal the wrath of God. And it's mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. God's anger is not dispassionate because he hates sin and loves righteousness and justice. But he's not temperamental or unpredictable. And that's, very, that's great in contrast to the God of the Quran, who is, who is capricious. There's no relationship or an antithetical relationship between the God of the Quran and the God of the Old Testament, if you want to get into that one. Anyway, that's the end, actually, of this passage. There is one more verse that we'll touch upon only briefly, but I want you to understand that I'm going to treat it as part of chapter 12. Verse 19, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. The ark of the covenant is shown up. Now, this is the real ark of the covenant. Moses made a replica of this. He saw it on the mount. The, re- the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is a replica of the one that he saw. Now, this is the real one. This isn't the one necessarily that Moses built. Some people think it might be. It could be. But the point you need to understand, everything in the tabernacle, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, detail for you, were replicas of what was shown Moses on the mount. One of the questions is, will it be found? Jeremiah 3.16 says the Ark of the Covenant will no longer be remembered nor come to mind. So I'm among those that would be very surprised if the Ark of the Covenant does in fact serve us. We'll touch upon this when we get to the temple study on that in detail. And if you're really interested in getting into that, we have a briefing package called Mystery of the Lost Ark, which deals with the origin, role, and so forth, not just of the Ark, but of the whole tabernacle, but also recounts all the current reports of it being discovered. There's about four or five of these that are in popular parlance, but I'll... uh, I'll leave that for a spe- that special briefing. But what you can do for uh, the next major chapter we take, chapter 12, is study the woman. The woman of chapter 12. Many, many commentators believe chapter 12 is the most difficult in the book of Revelation. I think it's the easiest. It's the easiest. I think, however, it's very critical. Your identity, identification of who the woman is in chapter 12 will illuminate not only what's going on there, but what's going on in the whole scripture. And you'll have an entirely different perspective of what's going on from Genesis 3 to the current day if you really understand who the woman is and what's going on there. So that'll be our challenge when we jump into chapter 12. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these realities that you've laid out before us. We thank you, Father, as we see these realities in preparation, as we see your people begin to prepare to rebuild their temple, and we begin to realize that you're moving the furniture into place for the final scenes. And Father, we just pray that you would, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, have these realities assault our priorities. Help us, Father, to realize that these aren't just concepts or ideas, but these are realities that are on our horizon, that these things will shortly come to pass. And, Father, we thank you that you are a God who makes and keeps promises. And we thank you, Father, that you are indeed in control and that we need have no fear. In fact, Father, we do indeed, before your throne, pray as you've taught us, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, indeed, Father. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly into our lives. Just help us, Father, to be ever more sensitive to what you would have of each of us in these days, that we each might respond to that unique ministry you've tailored for each of us to bear fruit for you in the days that remain. For we commit ourselves before you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.